Messy Realities, the secret life of technology. Hello everyone, my name's Gemma. I'm a health services researcher at Oxford University and I, with my colleagues and friends, have put together this podcast series called Messy Realities, the secret life of technology. The series describes how we took our research into assisted living technologies to the Pitt Rivers Museum in Oxford in search of some new meaning and inspiration. In this episode, I discuss with some of my academic colleagues the ways in which our engagement in the museum has inspired us to think differently about the human, cultural and social aspects of technology. We started to think more carefully about the relations between people and technologies, not just about whether the technologies work or not, but how people feel about the devices and equipment they use. Do they love or hate the technologies that are designed to assist them? In this episode, I talked to Dr. Laura Van Brockhoven, Dr. Sarah Shaw and Dr. Joe Wurton. Laura is Director of the Pitt Rivers Museum in Oxford and Professorial Fellow at Linacre College. Dr. Sarah Shaw is Associate Professor at the University of Oxford and Fellow at Green Templeton College. And Joe is Senior Researcher at Oxford. So, Laura, starting with you, the Pitt Rivers Museum is a museum quite unlike any other I have ever visited. It evokes strong responses in people. How would you describe the museum to someone who has never been here? It's always a very difficult question to do because it's a museum that sort of, once one comes in, you'll never forget it. And so that's one of the things that I'll tell people, that it's unique, as you were saying, uh, and also that it, it, it can be quite overwhelming in the sense that it has 55,000 objects on display, but in a display mode that's very unlike other museums that one could visit today, which are much more these sort of, I refer to them as sanitized white cubes where there's, sort of, there's nothing there except for the sort of whiteness of the walls and then there's the objects which are sort of put in cases and the Pitt Rivers Museum one could say is the opposite of that so it's much more sort of remembers of the Victorian age where there was almost like a horror vacui where lots of objects were put into cases together to tell a story and I think that's very much what the Pitt Rivers Museum for a lot of people it sort of has this aura of the museum of the museum people feel that it's a museum that is still like the 19th century and is, has been unchanged. The opposite is true though, because none of the 19th century displays are still on display. Um, but it certainly does invoke certain feelings. And for some people, those feelings can be that they can feel overwhelmed, as in where to start. That's usually what one sees when people come in. Um, and at the same time, because there's so many objects on display, we have 55,000 objects on display, it gives a sort of feeling of mm, liberty that one can go in and you know you'll never see all of it. Mm -hmm. While other museums you would go in and you would try to see sort of as you know, all the different galleries. Mm -hmm. In the Pitt Rivers Museum they're all in one space and one sort of feels a maze that one can discover on their own and that's what will happen that people will then sort of get almost um, very intrigued by specific objects the typical aspect of the Bit Rivers Museum that it has it started as a sort of museum of comparative technologies early technologies from across the globe so it tells stories from across the globe and instead of sort of saying okay this is how Europe has their technologies and this is how Africa designed their potteries and this is how um, um, Asia, ha you know, sort of cultures in Asia live. We actually um, have ex have displayed things by type, and so you will have lamps 
from all across the globe or you will have ways that people have found ways to dress themselves from all across the globe or you will find um, a case with narcotics from across the globe and so that um, sort of allows for lots of cross-cultural comparison which is um, I think in the 21st century a really interesting way of um, going into a museum where things have not been sort of sorted through regionalities or time periods but actually through a very different system that allows us to think in parallels but also difference uh, but difference as a good thing. And that's what we did really when we came into the museum we brought some of the technologies that we'd found in our research with people um, who are living with multiple health and social care needs, often at home. And we grouped some of those technologies with some of the artefacts from the museum. And that was quite a different way of thinking about those technologies and the idea of grouping things and finding objects that corresponded with those um, artefacts that we'd found in our research enabled us to look at them um, with a fresh perspective really to get a, a different way of looking at them. So that was something that was very um, very inspiring for us and a very different way of looking at things. But that's something that's quite unique to Pitt Rivers. Um, yeah, absolutely. I think, I mean, other collections could do it, but mm. they wouldn't have it on display and they wouldn't certainly have it in stores also in the same way. So I think when we had our first conversation, I was really immediately intrigued because I thought, yes, well, these are, you know, several of the objects that you guys brought into, into the museum are objects that we should probably have in the museum also on the longer term and add to the collections because they're the ones that are missing, uh, one could say, because we've, you know, so we do still collect, but um, there certainly are these wonderful parallels and they, I think, um, it was, there were several things that you and then later Trish also um, touched on that just felt like these were very innovative and inspiring ways of looking at the collection, at the contemporary relevance of these collections uh, for everyone, both people living here but elsewhere. And I think also for us as pe people working in museums, um, it just, so as, as for you, as you're saying, it made you think differently about these technologies. The same happened for us, I think, by pairing these um, new assisted living technologies with objects in the collections that had never been paired in that way they made it made us think through very differently what the sort of relevances of the collections are today also for it to be um, for, for these collections to be um, thought through in these co-productive co-creative ways as was uh, enabled through the um, project was absolutely um, crucial to the development of I think what museums can start thinking about in the future with similar sorts of collections. Mm. So to give an example, um, we brought together different objects that help people to move around. So we brought together some NHS walking frames made of shiny aluminium um, and some uh, walking sticks that people we found people using in our research. And we put those with some walking aids and some ceremonial objects from the, um, from the museum collections. Mm. And by putting those things together, we thought about, it, it inspired lots of conversations, but it also made us think differently about the objects. Um, and we had another grouping of different containers that were used in our research to hold medicines and um, from the museum collections, some containers that were used to hold different substances that were linked with um, health and well-being. And again, that made us think very differently about those different objects in, in conversation with each other, really. 
Right. And I think what, what to me sort of really um, the, 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 one of the one of the objects that um, you didn't mention it now, but it's a panic button object, which I think is one of these objects that to me really sort of it, it's the, the example I use to explain to people what we try to do with this with, with this project, because it really sort of it's the thing that people will know exactly that there, you know, somebody in their family probably has it and in, in how much people depend on it. Um, the same with the walking sticks and especially obviously many of these uh, walking, uh, they're not called sticks, where are they? Um, so eight, let's say. Um, I think for many people, for example, we have this one uh, Maasai um, collaboration today and I think that would be an interesting thing to do for a next stage maybe also to see should we bringing in indigenous people more into the conversation mm -hmm. too so not just people living with assisted te living technologies here but also from across the globe. Mm -hmm. um, one of the Maasai walking sticks um, they're not just walking sticks, they're actually really also tools of empowerment. They're often also a tool that would be used to um, to govern. They might be used, so, so age and um, will be mobilized in different ways in different communities. And I, can, I think that would be an interesting mm -hmm. conversation to, to have. On the, um, on the panic buttons, to me, what was so uh, inspiring about that is because one can actually sort of and, and seeing them in the room as in paired with each other in the picture that you have here certainly also again showcases that is that the, the idea that an amulet people would um, know exactly when it protects you they would you know know how to um, activate the protection also um, and pairing that with a panic button which as you know, your research was showing, aren't often used exactly the way that they were supposed to be used. I thought that was really interesting to sort of look at how, what sort of properties do people, cultural properties, but also personal properties, are transferred to these amulets. Um, and what if we would look at panic buttons in, within that framework of thinking? Yeah, and I think that was the first pairing that I think you made that when we very first spoke about this project. Um, I think I showed you a picture of a panic button, which is a pendant alarm that hangs around someone's neck. And you immediately made the connection with amulets, and that really kind of triggered the whole project, really, because there were these two objects that were very, very different in many ways, um, but also had some striking similarities. When you thought about them together, it changed our understanding for, for us as researchers, it changed our understanding of how pendant alarms or panic buttons were used right. um, and the significance they held for people that went above and beyond their initial purpose or function. Because yeah. they have a protective characteristic, mm. right? They're supposed to protect, they're there to protect you, <laughs> to sort of save you, which is very similar to how, how amulets can be um, sort of um, activated um, and, and the role that they would play in a, in a society also. But, and they also only, so our pendant alarms, our panic buttons only work mm -hmm. if they are attached to a network of people that will respond to that alarm. Exactly. Likewise, your amulets only yeah. work in a certain context, don't yeah. they? Yeah, yeah. In, in a sort of a set of understandings, yeah. let's say, of what will happen through that amulet yeah. is exactly the same as what happens within your, and if, if your amulet is used by an uninitiated person or a person who doesn't Know, doesn't understand how the amulet can be activated, it becomes useless, becomes useless which would yeah. be very similar to a panic yeah. button. And 
bringing the panic button into the museum, it is useless because it's not attached mm-hmm. to the the network that uh, allows it to connect people. So Which it's again, very... has this sort of museal facting of, of, of objects, of amulets, where uh, obviously uh, with an amulet, people who... Um, so that, and it would be interesting to think that through even more if we would pair them with each other because amulets, so for example, it, when we're working with originating communities like you know, the Maasai or uh, Rapport or you know, whoever, for them those objects would not have lost their um, power to be activated. Mm-hmm. Many of the objects are seen as more than just objects that yeah. are in the museum. And I suppose depending on how an amulet, a panic button has been, has gone through a life with people, it would also, the, the panic button that you have there now, which is in a crocheted little mm-hmm. pocket, already has a different sort of feeling to mm-hmm. it, I suppose, because it's been personalized, it has had a life with someone. For, for that person, it probably would still hold power, even though it was lying in our museum. Yeah, so we um, we asked um, people how they might personalise technologies and one of the responses from somebody who is a, a, a knitter and a crocheter mm. was to crochet a little pouch to put a pendant alarm in to um, make it a more friendly and homely object mm. because they're quite sterile looking objects. So that was their response to how you might make um, a pendant alarm or a panic button more, more user friendly, which was quite an interesting um, response to that. And Sarah, I'm going to um, ask you um, to say a little bit because you work in a very, very different area of research. You're a medical sociologist by background and you've done a lot of work around policy studies and language and discourse. Can you say a little bit about some of your your work um, and how that connects to um, what we've been doing with messy realities? I can try. Mm -hmm. I realise that I often start talking about my work by saying, and now for something completely different. So let's see where it goes. Um, I think a lot of my work came out of my PhD, um, which was focused on the development of health research policy, which is pretty niche in itself. Um, And I was basically looking for the kind of discourses that shape policy. So, for instance, we've got quite a strong one at the moment on knowledge-based economy. So the idea that the economy is quite global and based on knowledge, how you develop it and how you might sell it and market it. Um, Or particular ideas about science. So what it is, who does it, who doesn't do it, what it's for, what it can achieve. So particular sets of ideas around a discourse. And as part of that work, I then started to analyse language and interaction. So, for instance, in policy documents, which are really quite boring and mundane documents in many ways, but also fascinating when you start to get into them and really look at what's what's in there and why it's in there. And so from my perspective, that's been really important because it helps us to unpick very taken for granted ideas about what things are about. And in my case, what policy is about. Um, So the way the world works, what policy is about, but also what technologies can and can't do, how they're talked about in policy and what's promoted. I guess that's the particular link into then messy realities about what's possible or what's thought to be possible. Um, In terms of linguistic ethnography, which is where some of my my work has has gone, Basically, I sort of continued working for several years in this area, looking at discourses um, and connected with, I guess, what's still an emerging field in terms of linguistic ethnography. And it's more about a way that we go about doing research. 
Um, so it's really concerned with understanding the way we interact, so we as people interact, but in context of a particular culture or setting. Um, so ethnography is the study of communities and comes back to some of what we've already been talking about um, and allowing us to understand the context of people's lives, of policies, the way we live, what technology is about and what it does. Um, and then linguistics is the study of language, so it's allowing us to understand how people communicate and interact. So from my perspective, if you bring them together, you've then got a really powerful way of understanding the world and how language and interaction what we say and how we interact can shape what doesn't doesn't get done. So what kinds of discourses, what kinds of things are said about assisted living technologies? Maybe thinking about policy, um, but also other um, avenues where people talk about assisted living technologies. What do people say about them? They say lots of things, but I think policy is the obvious one, particularly from me, because I've done so much work in policy. Um, <clears throat> the most obvious really is what I would call a very modernist and really quite utopian vision about what technology is for, what it's about. So if you go and look at policy documents, which is something we've been doing at the university over the last well, four or five years, um, looking at policy around assisted living technologies, there's often a way of talking about technology that suggests it can just resolve everything. It's going to solve all of our problems, basically. Um, and if you take that into health policy and work around digital health and assisted living technologies, oh, let's put them all in the same bucket rather than unpack them here. Um, it's basically talked about as making health services more efficient, um, helping address budget deficits maybe in social care, so saving money, increasing access, improving lives, um, enabling better networks, so somehow connecting people better and more. And it's a very utopian way of thinking about what technology can do, but it also suggests that it's technology that does it. Mm. And that suddenly if we produce this technology and we put it out there, then all these things will just magically go away. Mm. And I'm slightly overemphasizing for effect, of course, but um, it's, it's a very particular way of viewing the world. And I would say that policy has shifted slightly, so it's not quite as utopian um, as it perhaps has been, but there are still strong elements of that in policy discussions and policy documents. But there are other discourses out there that challenge that, that vision and that idea of, of um, behind policy. There's a strong one, for instance, about non-adoption um, that reflects some of the current evidence that really many of the bright, shiny technologies that we all think about and many of us love, um, these get developed, but they're rarely taken up in practice. Um, so there's a kind of whole thing about kind of practical stuff and non-adoption, also adaptation. The vision in policy is one of you produce this technology, it exists and you do something with it. Um, discourses perhaps from people's everyday lives and experiences of using technologies that we've been talking about through the Messy Realities project um, is very much more about kind of practicalities and adaptation. And I think the example of the pendant alarm then being adapted and having a crochet knit around it becomes something else. Um, so there are other discourses out there that reflect people's experiences, I think, of using technology and abandoning it sometimes. Mm -hmm. So you've picked up really on the, um, the reasons why we've given this project the title we have, which is Messy Realities, because we picked up on that um, contrast between some of the very um, optimistic 
discourses or optimistic stories about how technology could solve lots of health and social care related problems and then the, the messy reality of what actually happens when people use those technologies um, and how in practice it's never as simple as it, it should be. Um, exactly. Things always need a bit of cobbling together, a bit of extra help, um, a bit of adaptation or personalization. Um, and one of the, we, we, can't, we explored that theme of personalization quite a lot in our, um, in our discussions um, in Messy Realities. And we looked at how people adapt and modify and personalize technology to make it fit their needs. And we talked about fitting, not just in terms of um, whether something works or not, but whether somebody might like a piece of technology or feel attracted to it, what it looks like, um, how it feels, um, and also whether or not it works for them in their particular home, for example. One of the things that um, I know that you've looked at, Sarah, is um, thinking about how people relate to technologies and how those technologies relate to their environment. Um, and we drill on, you, you drill on some, um, some ideas, some quite complicated ideas um, from the field of post-phenomenology um, to help us understand and explain some of those relationships between people and technologies and contexts. As you say, getting away from this idea that the technology will do it all, but having a, a more sophisticated understanding, I guess, of how the technology might work. C could you explain a little bit more about some of those, those ideas? I will try my very best. Um, so first of all, the, the ideas and then maybe a bit about how we applied them and what we did with them and what that meant. Um, so post-phenomenology, actually I'm reminded of Maureen Lipman. Do you remember that advert? That it was <laughs> she got an ology. She got an ology. Oh God, another ology. Um, so <laughs> post-phenomenology basically evolved out of phenomenology. Um, so, and broadly speaking, that's really about the study of experience, people's experience of the world around them and their everyday lives. Um, and post-phenomenology evolved from the work of an American philosopher called Don Ede, or Ede, who was concerned about the way, or the ways in which technologies basically shape, enable, constrain relations between humans, people, and the world. This is really quite simple, actually. It's just that when you start reading all the books, it gets really complicated. Um, so Ide basically hones in on what he talks about um, human technology world relations. And if there's one thing to kind of take from post-phenomenology, I think that very short hyphenated bit would, would be the summary. Um, and he says, and I, I quote, when we humans use technologies, both what the technology is or may be, and we as users undergo uh, an embodying process. So we invent our technologies, but in use, they reinvent us as well. Mm -hmm. So it's a kind of recursive relationship mm -hmm. with technology of shaping and reshaping. Um, and what he and other writers are basically saying is that technology has the potential to shape our choices, actions, emotions, values, experiences of the world. And we really need to think about those when we're doing research. And we need to think about those when we're thinking about technology, possibly even policy as well. Mm. That's my potted version. Um, <laughs> in terms of how these ideas basically helped us to understand the place of technology in the lives of, of carers, um, maybe it'd be helpful if I just talk very briefly about some of the work we did on care organising mm. technologies. Um, so care organising technologies are basically apps, so bits of software 
um, that have been designed for informal carers to help them to organise, document and coordinate the work of caring. So if you're caring for an elderly relative, for instance, or a friend who's really ill, you might use a bit of technology to help you to do that. Um, and we really wanted to understand how different technologies support, going back to ED, different kinds of human technology world relations. Um, and there's lots that I could say on that, but I think I could probably just get to the conclusion is probably the most useful bit without, otherwise I'm going to go off on some theoretical route, which is probably not that helpful here. Um, but we found that really most technologies and the designers and the developers and the people thinking about them tended to focus on what, what Ede calls hermeneutic relations. So that's hermeneutic human technology world relations. And that's relations in which the person relates to some form of readout or a visualization of the technology itself. So a good example is the MRI scan. Actually, what you're interested in terms of the technology when you go through an MRI scan is what's, what comes out at the end and what it might tell you about your brain and how it's functioning. Um, um, and that's really been the main focus of people who are thinking about care organizing technologies. So it situates caring in a very particular way. The technology and how it's designed, developed, thought about, kind of places an image of caring, if you like, into the work of caring. Um, but we also found, which um, we were quite excited about, was there's really significant potential for other kinds of relations, particularly embodied relations. Um, so that involves the user's experience being reshaped through the device, so through the care organising technology, with the technology in some in some ways being taken into the user's bodily awareness. Um, and I think the really nice example that I've got here is a pair of glasses. So I need them, but actually um, uh, they kind of reshape the world and my vision of the world. And so we think about these as embodied, creating embodied human world technology relations. And we're beginning to see that with care organising technologies that they can reshape the way that we think about and do caring work. Mm. We had a discussion earlier about um, just going back to the idea of how uh, a technology is thought about by the designer or the creator and how that differs from the person that uses it. We had the example earlier of the, the pill wallet um, where um, you might have a, um, a dosset box, often called, where um, you can put your pills, if you take many, many medicines every day, you can decant them into a box and you can take your, your morning medicines, your lunchtime medicines, your afternoon medicines and your, your, your nighttime medicines and you, you plan it out for the week. But somebody who actually takes many, many medicines might find that they don't fit into that box. The assumption of the designer of the box is that you maybe have one or two pills and you take them at set times in a day. But actually in practice, somebody might take so many pills they don't fit inside the box. So that's maybe another example of that contrast between how the process of taking medications is thought about by the designer and how it's actually experienced by the person that's taking lots of pills. Likewise with the care organising apps, the, person, the people designing those are expecting care to be something that is recorded and read about rather than something that is embodied or experienced, which is what we actually found in practice. Would you say that's a, a, a good comparison in terms of the contrast between designer and user? Absolutely, mm -hmm. yes, exactly. 
Um, one of the um, things that we've also talked about is the way in which any given technology or device or object has multiple meanings. I mean, you've touched on this already, Laura. Um, and we use the term multi-stability, Sarah, to, um, to help us explain how something might function in multiple ways and have different meanings. Can you elaborate a little bit more on what multi-stability might mean? I can. I, again, I think it sounds like such a tricky concept, um, but actually I think it's really quite simple and I think you've already summarised it rather nicely. Um, a, and a good example I think might be my phone. So to me, it's really a, a phone <laughs> with possibilities for email. It's quite a work-oriented thing. Um, I do a bit of email, perhaps I search the internet a bit. It's a smartphone, although in many ways not very smart. Um, but for my two young daughters, it means something totally different. Um, so to them, it's something to play with. They're five. Um, it's a camera. It's a means of recording videos, which they're doing a lot of at the moment, and sending those videos then. So they have a way of communicating with family and friends. It's often very visual rather than just oral. Um, telling people about their day at school or showing things. And it's fun because they draw and colour and, and play with it. and they, they interact with it in a different way. It means something very different to them than it does mm. to me, which I find quite frustrating, obviously. <laughs> but I mean, they're absolutely fine for those things to coexist, and um, that it means one thing to them um, and slightly different to them and to me. Um, and yet it's just one piece of technology. So that's really multi-stability, mm. um, multiple meanings and uses uh, and experiences, technology all, all wrapped into the same thing. We basically, we say that, that it is multi-stable. Um, and we found something very similar when we were thinking about care organising technologies. Um, so to be able to function, a care organising technology needs a network of people attached to it. So you have these care networks and group, groups of people who are connected to the technology involved in caring for someone. And they all had very different ideas about and uses for the technology. So it was rarely if ever meant one thing to everyone. Um, even when you sort of break it down to thinking about what the tasks of caring might be and how you might use the technology in that way, it was used and thought about differently by people within the same network looking after the same person. And so on the one hand, people wanted to use these technologies to help them coordinate some of the practical tasks of caring. But on the other hand, they again adapted it and evolved it um, so it could become something else to them and more meaningful to them. And often people melded technologies together so they'd have two or three technologies working in conjunction with one another, perhaps using photos and videos as well as a way of kind of coordinating care through lists. Um, and that allowed them to communicate in ways that they wanted to, um, but also potentially transform the caring experience in ways that were meaningful to them. Mm. I'm going to ask Joe you to come in on this because um, of the um, issue around social networks. I think it's really relevant to to your research. So, Joe, you, your background's in psychology and human computer interaction, and I know that you've done a lot of um, participatory um, research, um, and you've used a lot of ethnographic methods as well. Can you tell us a little bit about the research you've done on the GPS tracking devices? people with dementia? What, what, what kind of device did you um, look at? Yeah, so this project came about, um, we were actually approached by an uh, uh, adult social care service um, who were wanting to use these GPS tracking devices, um, but were having a, 
quite a lot of difficulty actually implementing it in practice. And so these GPS tracking devices, they're essentially designed for people with um, mild to moderate dementia who um, are often going out, going wandering, often becoming lost. And these devices are essentially designed, I mean, there's a broad range of different products, but essentially that the core feature is um, that the person has to carry or wear the device and the family member or a carer can basically set a perimeter um, of areas where they are happy for them to, you know, wander into, um, like a safe zone <clears throat> or setting out a geofence. And then if the person breaches that boundary, um, it will set an alert to the family member who can then see the person's location on a, a digital map, you know, a bit like a Google's map, and then go and retrieve them. Um, and these alerts can come straight to the family members and they can look at the map on their phone or on, the, on a computer. Um, but more often it, it tends to go through a, um, a, a call centre. So there's a, an operator in the loop who will see the person's location on the map and then call the family members and tell them where they are. So the device will be worn by someone with dementia, for example, perhaps around their wrist or... Yeah, it could be around their wrist. Um, it could be attached, say, on, on a belt. Mm. Um, quite often, actually, wearing the device can be a, a problem because obviously it's designed for someone with memory problems. They can forget to put it on. Mm. So sometimes it's also, you know, hidden in the pocket, put in the handbag. And mm. um, sometimes there are those kind of more covert ways of, of tracking the, the person. Mm. And can you give us an example of someone you work with that use one of these devices? What kind of problems and challenges? Well, yeah, I mean, so one thing we did um, when we were doing the study, um, in order to really understand the challenges that people are facing with this technology, we did in-depth um, ethnographic work with a small number of cases. We worked with about eight individuals in total. And I mean, one thing that's very striking across all of those, actually, um, was that wandering um, for those individuals in many ways was a very fulfilling and meaningful activity, you know, to actually engage in wandering activity. So when you um, say wandering, sorry to interrupt you, when you say wandering, you mean going off for a wander, going off for a walk, going off exploring for a walk. the neighbourhood. Exactly. And often, you know, we think of wandering in a dementia context as a problem mm -hmm. or, you know, to be, to be managed or a symptom of confusion and so on. Um, but actually, one thing this study really highlighted is that as we, for, for everyone else, um, you know, wandering is kind of fundamentally human. You know, walking about isn't just about getting from A to B. It's, you know, people like to wander and experience their local environment. Um, so that was very striking. And, and, and what we found is that different families um, use GPS um, in very different ways to manage the risks of wandering and, you know, allowing that freedom, freedom of movement against um, ensuring that they were safe. And the way they used it was tied up in all sorts of other contextual factors, um, which were unique to that particular case. So what, one example I, I can think of is um, a father and son who lived together. So um, Patrick, who was the father, he was in his 80s and he had um, mild dementia. And his son, Stephen, 
um, lived with him and he sort of cared for him. And I spent a lot of time with, with Patrick and sort of his wandering activities. And his routine really centered around going to a bookmaker's, so to, you know, to watch and place bets on horses. And this bookmaker's was just a short distance down the road. And he went there every day going to this bookmaker's. And because of his mild dementia, um, he wasn't actually able to fully engage in, in, in watching the races and um, placing bets. Um, but he was actually still able to, you know, on some level, engage in that activity. So you know, he could sit there and look at the screens and, and just watch the races. Um, and also, he was able to do the ritual of placing bets. Um, so what he would do is uh, pick up one of those betting slips you get in the shops and write FAV on the front, which means Bookie's favourite. Um, I know that because I do a lot of betting on the horses. And, um, and, and basically, the, um, the, 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 person, the cashier knew then that she had placed the bet. And Steve helped this, so he gave him the money, he gave him about £10 to engage in this activity. And then if he won the bet, if he won the, uh, the race, then the cashier would call him over and give him his money, and then he could place, place another bet. So on a good day, he could be there all day, you know, placing, placing um, bets. Um, so what, the way the GPS was configured in that setting is um, that the perimeter was fixed, and it was encompassing their house, the, the, the bookmakers, um, and also a, a local pub, because sometimes he bumped into an old friend who owned the pub and he might pop over for a pint. So we had this nice setup of the GPS perimeter. Um, and that worked well in that particular context because um, the people in the betting shop knew Patrick, you know, they knew his mild dementia, and they knew that they had to call him over if he won a bet and so on. Also, his son Steve, you know, he, the house was in close proximity to the bookmakers. So he could pop over there, check on, in on him. Um, if he had to go to you know, a doctor's appointment, he could go and collect him. Um, so that worked well. And also the environment itself, you, know, you have all these kind of materials and spatial layouts of the bookmakers, which allowed him to, on some level, engage in this meaningful activity. So in this particular context, um, GPS tracking actually helped you know, enable his wandering activity. It, you know, his wandering in some sense was seen as a, as a positive and fulfilling thing. But if he breaks that geofence, um, then it would raise an alert to Steve and he would have to collect him. So in that context, it was considered to be bad that he was wandering. And he often did break the geofence. So for example, if the bookmakers was, um, was closed, um, Patrick would quite naturally um, go down the road and try and find the next bookmakers down the road. But unfortunately, yeah, they wouldn't know him that well and it wouldn't work in terms of the whole, the whole setup. Um, also, there are occasions where Patrick would um, try and go to the bank to get more money, which was a major concern for, for Steve. Um, and it would cause some confusion for, for, for Patrick, you know, if he's trying to withdraw money um, to, to place his bets. So that was a, an example of something that we saw throughout all of our cases, where you have these very particular ways in which they adapted their use of the technology mm -hmm. Um, but how it's you know it's very particular to that particular context mm. into how it works. Mm.
that's a really lovely example of how technology can help someone do something that's meaningful to them that maybe was never envisaged by the person that designed the technology who wouldn't necessarily have any thought to the details of that person's life. Exactly, and I think it illuminates something that we, we see across a lot of our studies is that the technology um, can never be can can never be and never will be a plug and play solution. It's mm -hmm. very much a much wider kind of social and technical material arrangements that are supporting that solution. Yeah, yeah. Is there anything else you wanted to um, reflect on in terms of Laura and Sarah, in terms of um, Joe's really nice example there of someone who was able to benefit from technology because they were supported by a, a sort of social network to do something that was meaningful to them? Final okay. reflections? Well, the only thing that I'd add is that, just going back to what we were saying earlier about policy, mm. I think the, it's a really nice example of what's not in policy. Mm. <laughs> and the amount of work that went in in these particular cases to, to personalise and bring about really quite a nuanced set of ideas and ways of doing things with and around the technology is really very different from how policy is talked about in that utopian kind of approach we were talking about. I would agree that I think it's 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 quite nice to see how sort of these um, digital technologies, the sort of lives that they have and the lives that they enable, uh, and that they can only exist within a sort of family, uh, but also neighbourhood um, relationships that are being built. And I think that's where what you were mentioning earlier about the uh, post-phenomenology in the sort of new materialisms that um, museums are looking at um, materials and, and artifacts, as uh, we refer to them, uh, in the, the fact that many of these objects can only exist, they only exist in relationships, uh, through the relationships also, both from the materials that they're made out of and obviously the people that use them, the people that produce them. And I think that's a sort of set of relationships that is really nice to, within these ethnographic ways of working, to sort of chart out and start understanding how then the whole new relationships that are enabled and in continuation of relationships actually also with the bookmakers, with the mm -hmm. is enabled through these technologies. And I think that's where it's quite nice to sort of move away from thinking that it's either the sort of uh, the, the perfect pill that will solve all societal issues. And at the same time, it's it's the fact that this person doesn't need to be lonely, doesn't need to be, it can actually live in his home, but continue sort of relationship buildings, uh, which I think is really quite nice to sort of reflect on and, and, and see happening in the contemporary in the UK. Um, and I think that's, um, you know, as the sort of relationships that you would want to be telling stories about also mm -hmm. when you people come into the museum, when you're thinking through things, um, that would be nice for us to find ways to talk about objects in that way. Yeah, to tell the stories of the of the objects and the people and that are relational. Um, yeah, and as always, I think we could probably continue for a lot longer, um, but we need to wrap up now. So I would like to say thank you to Laura and Sarah and Joe for joining me in conversation today. We've had a fascinating discussion and connected some different academic and theoretical perspectives around how people relate to technology. Um, you can listen to some of the conversations that have inspired our theoretical framings in the rest of the podcast series.